0: It is an honor for me to be here. It's always, I'm always grateful to share the Word of God with you. Uh, it's always an honor to preach the Word of God, but it's especially meaningful for me today, as uh, Pastor Austin mentioned Uh, this church has been a blessing to my wife and I in many ways uh, over the years. Some 17 years ago or so now, uh, while we were students at Cairn University, we found ourselves looking for a new church, uh, at least for the time, knowing that we were going to move on from there at some point. But uh, the church we were attending wasn't We felt doing a great job preaching the Bible. We were looking for a a church rooted in the Word of God that was great at preaching, and we stumbled across Riverstone, uh, which was Bible Fellowship back then or something like that. Uh, So this church, while we were students, ministered to us for a little over a year, and now nearly two decades later, uh, the Lord has brought us back to this area, and we were pleased to bring our much larger family now back into fellowship with you once again. As Pastor Austin said, uh, before taking the full-time position at Cairn University, I was a pastor for 15 years in New Jersey and then later in Michigan. And during that time, one of my greatest joys in ministry was seeing God's faithfulness as he works through his word in his people. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired, or more literally, God-breathed. Every last bit of it, every chapter of the Bible has usefulness for the man and woman of God to sanctify us, to equip us for good works, to train us in righteousness, even to correct us. But what the Apostle Paul says next really motivated my heartbeat as a preacher. Because the very next verse, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. So Paul says all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for our spiritual growth. And then in the same breath, he says, therefore, preach the word that word that means that all those genealogies in genesis and chronicles they are part of the inspired word of god and are useful for our edification that means all those weird chapters about mold and mildew and leviticus are inspired by god and they can teach us something about our spiritual walk with christ the Old Testament prophets, the long lists and numbers, the, the law in Deuteronomy, all of it is inspired and useful. Do you believe that, church? Good, because today's passage is going to test that. <laughs> last week, Pastor Austin began the series In Ezra and Nehemiah, two books that really tell one story together. And as we saw last week, these books highlight God's faithfulness in great frustrations, That's the tag for this series, God's faithfulness in great frustrations, and it's a good tag. The Israelites faced plenty of frustration. Consider the larger historical context of Israel's history. In 722, the Assyrians came in and exiled northern Israel. I think we might have a chart on this too up there, uh, if, if we can pull that up. Great. So 722, the Assyrians came in, they exiled northern israel about 150 years later the babylonians came in and eventually 586 bc they overtook southern israel or judah and they destroyed the temple in jerusalem thousands of israelites were exiled to a foreign land at that time and for 70 years the israelites sat there wondering what now what do we do now Our land has been taken away. Our centers of worship have been demolished. Our people have been killed and scattered. What do we do now? Is God still faithful to his covenant promises? Is God still faithful to his people? And that's when we open up Ezra 1 and we find out, yes, Emphatically so, yes, God will keep his promises. God is always faithful to his people. In Ezra 1, 538 BC, God uses a pagan king named Cyrus to send his people back to the promised land to rebuild their lives and rebuild the temple. And Ezra 1 begins by being worded in terms of the fulfillment of these prophecies spoken by the prophets of old. What God predicted through his prophets happened. God is faithful. The people get sent back. They don't return empty-handed. At the end of Ezra 1, there's this long list of, of all these golden bowls and silver bowls and dishes and all these beautiful things that were stolen from Israel's temple and now were returned in their own hands coming back to the land. All because God is faithful. I know this is the early service, but I'm glad that you're with me here. And that shouldn't surprise us that God is faithful, right? As we read the pages of Scripture, you see that everywhere. God is faithful. God is faithful to keep his covenants. God is faithful in the Exodus. God was faithful to conquer the land. God is faithful. But his people are not. We sinners are not a faithful people, are we? The Israelites were not faithful to keep the covenants that God made with them. The Israelites were not faithful before, during, or after the exodus as they grumbled before the Lord. The Israelites showed mistrust when conquering the land. God's people are characteristically unfaithful. But here's the cool thing. Ezra 2 is one of those rare chapters in scripture that highlights not only the faithfulness of God, but also highlights the faithfulness of God's people. In fact, what we're going to see is that the faithfulness of God motivates the faithfulness of God's people. Now, the only possible obstacle that we have here is that this is not an easy chapter to read, like literally not easy to read. It's tough to read because this is a chapter filled with over 100 names, but we're going to read them, all of them. We're not going to skip over them because we believe this is part of all of Scripture and that it is God-breathed and it should be preached. So I'm gonna read the whole thing, almost the whole chapter right in a row from top to bottom, and then we're gonna work our way back through it a little bit more slowly, and by the end, hopefully, you will see that this list of names highlights God's faithfulness and highlights a rare moment of Israel's faithfulness and even applies to our lives today. So Ezra, starting in chapter two, verse one, here we go. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Beena, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parish, 2,172, the sons of Shephetiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 775, The sons of Pahath Moab and the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bibai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Adin, 454. The sons of Atur of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bazai, 323. The sons of Jura, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The men of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Nedophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Azmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, Cherphrim, and Birath, 743. The sons of Ramah and Giba, the men, or 621. The men of Mikmash, 122 the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, the sons of Nebo, 52, the sons of Magbish, 156, the sons of the other Elam, 1,254, the sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Lod, Hadad, and, oh no, 725, the men of Jericho, 345, the sons of Senea, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua 973, the sons of Imur 1052, the sons of Peshur 1247, the sons of Harim 1017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel of the sons of Hadaviah 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akob, the sons of Hatida, the sons of Shabai and all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Zehah, the sons of Hashufa, the sons of Tebeoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Saiahah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedil, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rea, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Azar, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nefeshim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhar, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Timah, the sons of Niziah, the sons of Hatipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasurapha, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaela, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Atiel, the sons of Pokareth Hazibim, the sons of Amy. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. I am convinced that Pastor Austin asked me to preach this simply because he did not want to read that list of names out loud. I am convinced. This is the pastor's version of hazing the new guy. Give him Ezra 2 to preach on a Sunday morning, (laughs) right? What is this all about? I wanted to read that because you had to hear it, but what is it all about? Over a hundred names, all these numbers, what is the purpose of this list, and how does it help me in my spiritual walk with Jesus? Let's start from the beginning, take it a little bit more slowly, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, and maybe we'll figure out why this list of names is in the Bible. Look again at verses one and the first part of verse two. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baena. This gives us context for the rest of this list. These are the people who came up out of captivity, who came out of exile, who returned to Jerusalem, their promised land. That gives us a whole new perspective on this list of names. This is not just a boring list of names in the Bible. This is a list of people who experienced the fulfillment of God's promises by bringing them up from the exile back into the promised land. And suddenly when you understand it like that, this text becomes a whole new thing. It sounds strange to us in our modern ears because we're not familiar with these names. We don't recognize names like Realiah or Mispar. Mispar is what I do when I golf. It's not a name. But I suspect that if we heard names like Miller instead of Mispar, or Anderson instead of Anathoth, then that might sound a little bit more familiar to us. Imagine for a moment that thousands of Americans were exiled, taken captive by a foreign people into a foreign country for decades. And then, many, many decades later, they're allowed to return. All those that are still in the land Get a list of who's coming back. Now, anyone left at home looking at that list is going to be reading it with tears in their eyes, eager to see their name in print, eager to see their family members' names in print, eager to see last names that they recognize. You ever go to Ellis Island, take a list at all the Smiths and the Joneses that came from our immigrant ancestors? I mean, those names have great relevance to us because we know them, we are them, we are connected to them. I suspect if this text had names like the sons of Michalak, 42, the sons of Delgado, 29, and, and so on, that might sound more familiar to us. Now, there are a few names that you might recognize in here. Like verse 2, the list starts with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. If you don't recognize those names today, you will recognize them by next week because they become major characters in this book. You see names like Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, that's kind of a trick because it's not the same Nehemiah as the guy in the book of Nehemiah, just like Mordecai is not the same guy as the guy in the book of Esther. But the thing to understand is that these names, these families represented the faithful fulfillment of God's promises to his people. 70 years before Ezra chapter 2 the prophet Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah 29:10 For thus says the Lord When 70 years have been completed for Babylon I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place This is that and, and a few years before that, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 44:28, "It is I who says of Cyrus, "He is my shepherd, he will perform all my desire' And he declares of Jerusalem, "She will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid." That is Ezra 1 and two. This is fulfillment. This entire list testifies to the faithfulness of our God. And when you read it like that, it transforms this from a seemingly boring list of names to a testament of how great of a God that we serve. Think about it in that context. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, God is faithful. The sons of Shephetiah, 372, God is faithful. The sons of Ara, 775, God is faithful. Yes, do you get it now? Rather than a dead list of names, this becomes one of the most alive texts in all of Scripture. Because these people were the ones brought from exile and returned to life. The exile represented death to the Israelites. But if the exile represented death, then the return from exile represented their renewed life, resurrected The prophet Ezekiel pictured it like a bunch of dry, dead bones coming back to life, having flesh, having skin, and resurrected before the people. That is what this text is, a bunch of dry, dead bones coming back to life, and that should excite us, church, because if you are a Christian, that is what the Lord has done for you spiritually. He brought our dead, dry heart back to life. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but by putting our faith in God, not by our own works, but by our faith through the grace of God, we can be made spiritually alive. Praise God for that gospel. That's what we call the good news that Jesus Christ died, rose again so we can put our faith in him for eternal life. You can trust in him today if you haven't already. Confess your sin, believe in Jesus and his work, and you will be saved, made alive. So now that we're reading this with a different lens, let's try to make some sense of this. The first major paragraph, verses 2 to 35. Each verse represents a whole family group that came from exile back to Israel. So the family of Parash had 2,172 people returned from exile. Family of Elon, 1,254 people returned from exile, and so on. The family of Adonikam, 666 people. <gasps> Maybe they should have added another or subtracted one, you know, unlucky, right? But no, it's just, it's just a number. Like there's no symbolic significance to 666 here or any other numbers here. It's just the amount of people that came back. You might have noticed though, starting in verse 21, the list there changes from family names to the names of people listed by their cities. Most of those cities are found in Judah or Benjamin. So Bethel and Ai, 223 people from there. Lod, Hadad, and oh no, 725 people. Like, I love how God just puts, oh no, in the midst of all these names. It's kind of a a little Easter egg for us there in the Bible. And then the next group, we have the priests, the Levites, the people who served at the temple, and the list of names goes on from there. So if we kind of pan out and look at this whole thing in an outline form, like we see on the screen here, we notice what's going on. First, the Israelites are listed clan by clan, city by city. Then the priests are listed, then the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers, then the temple servants, then the descendants of Solomon's servants, and so on. Now, it's important that we hear this from an Israelite's perspective, because when we hear the word priest, we oftentimes think of like a Catholic priest, right? A little white collar, that, that kind of a priest. When we hear the word Levite, we might not have any idea what the word Levite means. We don't normally use that word today. But these priests and these Levites and these temple servants, they make up at least half of this list. So it's important that we know who these people are. Priests were men who served in the temple. They officiated religious services. They oversaw the sacrifices and the worship. Back then, not just anybody could become a priest. You had to be a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother. And Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. So all priests were Levites because that was like the big category, but not all Levites were priests because that was the more narrow category. So Levite is the bigger category. Priest was a special branch of Levites. So it's not like today. Today, if you want to become a religious official, like a pastor, it doesn't matter who your descendants are. The church is voting on Pastor Austin tonight from what I understand, right? As far as I know, I haven't been here too long since coming back but I'm fairly confident that the question of what Israelite tribe did you come from, Pastor Austin, probably was not one of the questions the elders asked him. Am I right? Okay, I'm right, yes. We don't care about that today. Pastor Jeremy, we don't know what tribe he's from. Like, no idea, right? But again, we we don't care about that. But for the Israelites, that was a big deal. It was a big deal because God said it was a big deal. God said priests had to be from a certain tribe of Levi and from the descendants of Aaron. Other Levites, not from Aaron's line, were allowed to work at the temple. They could help out. They couldn't function as official priests, but they could be gatekeepers. They could be temple servants. They could sing in the temple choir. Now, what's interesting to me is that when you look at this list, all these Levites and priests, They only make up a slice of the total pie. We like dessert, so I'll use that pie analogy. A slice of the total pie that is Israel. But the balance of the text gives them half the screen time as the whole rest of Israel. In other words, even though percentage-wise they only made up a fraction of all of Israel, the religious officials get more attention in the text than the rest of them. And what that tells me is that this is where the priorities of Israel laid at this time. As I said at the top of this sermon, the surprise is not that God is faithful. I mean, we, we, that's a known fact. You read any page of Scripture, you see the faithfulness of God right there. But what's surprising to me is a list like this also testifies to the faithfulness of God's people. Their priorities were in check. They were faithful even to return From the exile. That took courage. The land of Persia where they were exiled to, that was the cushy lifestyle. The land of Israel, that was a a barren wasteland. Persia was filled with luxury and with riches and with great stuff. Israel was filled with wild animals and crumbling houses. It would be like moving from Yardley, Pennsylvania to the middle of war-torn Somalia. And this was a journey of over 500 miles. If you take a look at the map, you can kind of see a, get a sense of where they came from and how far they had to travel. 500 miles on foot. No airplanes, no cars, not even one of those cool like electric bikes that people zoom around on nowadays. 500 miles on foot. This summer, I moved my family 500 miles from Michigan to Pennsylvania in cars. And that was miserable. <laughs> Lots of kids. We've got a dog. We've got turtles. We've got fish. There's a hamster somewhere in all that midst. It was miserable. In cars. 500 miles on foot with all these families moving from lush Persia to Israel took faith. And it could only have happened because the divine initiative of God's faithfulness motivated the faithfulness of his people. But even more than that, they prioritized returning to the land with the right people to get the temple back in order in order to get their worship services started again. They prioritized getting the right amount of religious equipment. That was Ezra 1, all those golden and silver bowls and dishes. You don't see that list in Ezra 1 Give us a list of how many rolls of toilet paper they brought back with them from exile, right? I'm sure they brought some, but that's not the point. The point is, they brought back the things to help them worship God. And in Ezra 2, you don't see a separate list of all the people from the tribe of Benjamin or from Judah or from Manasseh or from Reuben. They're all smushed together as Israelites. What you see is a separate list of Levites and priests, people whose job it was to help others worship. It would be like hearing that list of returning exiles to America and you just kind of lump together all the Smiths and the Joneses and the Andersons and whatever in one half of the list, but then in the other half, you have a list of pastors, of worship leaders, of Sunday school teachers, of ushers, of deacons. What would that say about our priorities? For once in the long and storied history of Israel, the people are faithful. But lest we forget it, It's only because God is faithful. The faithfulness of God motivates the faithfulness of his people. God showed himself faithful by fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, raising up a pagan king named Cyrus to send the Israelites back to their homeland. God showed himself faithful by allowing the Israelites to return to their homeland with all the items that were stolen from them from their temple. God showed himself faithful by stirring up the hearts of his people to motivate them to do something outrageously difficult for the Lord. The faithfulness of God motivated the faithfulness of his people. And for once, the Israelites' priorities were straight. I almost wonder what would happen if we had to make a list of our priorities. How would that compare to this list? What if you had to put everything that you spent time on this week into two columns? One column was just what you spent time on for whatever. Secular purposes, your job, entertainment, etc. And one column would be the things that you spent time on for the Lord and his kingdom. What would your list look like? Where would your priorities be? Would your priorities highlight your devotion to God? Or would it reveal something uncomfortable about your heart and your lifestyle? That's what a list like this challenges us to consider. God's people were returning. They were concerned with worship. They were concerned with purity. And now, verses 1 to 58, which we read, it was a list of exiles who returned to the land. They were able to trace their descendants back to the specific tribes these were the people from Levi. These were people from Benjamin, from Judah, and so on. And now verses 59 and 60 list a group of people who returned, even though they were not able to trace their ancestry. Take a look. You thought we were done with all these names. Verse 59 now these are those who came from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. But they were not able to give evidence of their father's household and their descendants, whether they were of Israel the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. So this is a group of people who returned with all the others, but for one reason or the other, they couldn't necessarily prove that they were pure-blooded Israelites. But that's okay. They were still allowed to return. They were still counted as the people of God, even though they couldn't tell you for sure which tribe they were from. That's Because being part of the people of God, even in the Old Testament, was not about race. It was never about race, even when it was about being an Israelite. Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in God's sight. They were now, they were back then. In fact, it just wasn't just a general population that had this trouble tracing their ancestry. Look at verses 61 to 63. It says of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and he was called by their name, these searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. Now, there is a very important theological point being made here. We have to understand, we understand, we have to make sure we understand this correctly. Once again, this is not a racist text. This is not saying that God excluded people of certain nationalities just because. It's not saying that God is a racist. It's important that we consider this for a moment. I I used to pastor a church that was very white, at least 95% white, but it was situated in an area that was not nearly as white as our church. And for years, I wondered why very few of our members and leaders saw that as an issue. These problems can creep into our church if we are not careful. Members of any race could become part of the people of God, not just in the New Testament, but Old Testament as well. God is not looking just for white American males to join his team. Every one of you was created in the image of God. And God loves you no matter what background you are from. But for the sake of holiness and purity here, only certain individuals were allowed to serve as priests in the Old Testament Israel. The function of that exclusion was cultic, not ethnic. In other words, it was a religious function. If anything, the inclusion of these individuals in this list speaks to The inclusion of everyone, not the exclusion of certain people. In fact, the text indicates that these people that couldn't prove that they were of priestly descent were going to wait until the leaders consulted God with what we call the Urim and Thummim. Urim and Thummim were these uh, special stones that God allowed the people to communicate and discern his will at times in Israel's history. The people planned on waiting on God's special revelation for their inclusion. And interestingly enough, I don't wanna like spoil another really fun list for you in the Bible, but later in Nehemiah, some of these guys are mentioned like the sons of Hekaz, and it seems as though they were validated in their descendancy. The point is the people of God came back from exile super concerned with purity, with following God's law. They didn't wanna mess up again like they did before. They were faithful in their return They were faithful even in the way they organized the house of worship. It is a rare picture of Israel's faithfulness. And then verse 64 tells us the whole assembly numbered 42,360. Besides their male and female servants who numbered 7,337, and they had 200 singing men and women, their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys six thousand two hundred, or 6,720. Now we're even counting the camels and donkeys, right? We're including all of them too. Over 40,000 people returned in that first wave of returnees. God preserved over 40,000 people from exile, faithful enough to want to come home to Israel, even though living in Persia was much easier, much more comfortable. God is faithful. And not only that, but look at how this chapter ends. Verses 68 to 70. Some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly... For the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. Now, the priests and Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Let me put some of this in modern terms for you because, as far as I know, we don't deal in drachmas and silver minas today anymore. The money counters after service do not have to pull out their Persian conversion chart and figure out the exchange rate of a drachma to a dollar, right? So what does this mean? 61,000 drachmas of gold is a little over 15,000 ounces of gold. Now, you, you look at modern terms and modern value, modern currency, the current value of gold today is around $1,670 per ounce, So if you do the math, you carry the four, you multiply by five, you put it all together. We are talking somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 million just of gold. And add to that a couple more million dollars of silver minas, around 6,250 pounds worth of silver. These Israelites were loaded. Persia served them well. But more than that, these Israelites were generous. 40,000 of them, all these families gave $25 million. Why? To get the Lord's house in order. Are we that generous with our money? You can tell the priority of the heart by the priority of the wallet. Or to put it in more modern terms, you can tell what the heart worships by what is in the Amazon cart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But I want you to notice where their heart was at. Notice one more thing. Look at how the narrator writes verse 68. He says, some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Do you notice that? When they arrived where? At the house of the Of the Lord. But remember, at the time that this was taking place, there was no house of the Lord. The temple was demolished. Jerusalem was in ruins. And yet the people returned to it as if it were there because they were living in light of the promises that God had made. They were living as if God had already fulfilled his promises to them. They've seen God's faithfulness in the past. They were experiencing the faithfulness of God in their present. And now based on that past and present faithfulness, they were living in light of God's future promises as if they had already taken place. They put their trust and their faith in God. Isn't that awesome? Stepping back, let's consider what we've seen here today. Three major things. Number one, God's people responded to God's faithfulness with courageous obedience. God was faithful to open up the way for them to return to their homeland. And they responded with this courageous obedience. It took courage to go back. They they had to leave a comfortable lifestyle. They had to get up off the couch and do something difficult. That took faith. God has called us today to obey with boldness and with faith. Faith. It takes boldness to share your faith with somebody, doesn't it? It takes courage. It's a little scary sometimes. Even for pastors, it's a little scary sometimes to to share your faith. It takes faith to give a certain portion of your income to the Lord, especially in an economy like this. God has called us, though, to faithful, courageous obedience. My wife and I had a missionary couple and their family over last week, They were missionaries to Liberia. Uh, And this missionary, his name was John Mark. He spent the last 10 years of his life living in primitive conditions in Liberia. He's got a family with three kids. Translating the Bible into a language that does not have the Bible. During those 10 years, they have faced sickness. They have faced hostility from the natives, robbery, all kinds of trials. And yet John Mark sat on my couch And he pulled out a copy of the New Testament, written in a new language. And he said, it was worth it. It was worth it. We're going to see people in heaven because of the courageous obedience of those missionaries. Ten years of work. What has God called you to? Maybe it's not going to Liberia to translate. Maybe it is. Maybe it's helping out with kids' ministries. That takes courageous obedience, (laughs) right? Maybe it's serving in your community in some way, reaching out to your neighbors with the gospel. It's not really a sacrifice when we think about it. If the rewards that we receive in heaven are far greater than anything we've ever given up here on earth to get them. How is God calling you to courageous obedience today? Second, God's people made purity and worship their priority the second thing we saw god's people made purity and worship their priority and i i understand priorities like it's it's a struggle for me too i get it as pastor austin mentioned i've got four kids two five eight and ten i don't even call them by names they're just numbers to me right there's so many of them (laughs) three of those four kids play soccer now if you know me you'll know i hate soccer I mean, it is literally the worst. Three of my four kids not only play soccer, but they're good at it. My one kid scored seven out of nine goals on his team last week. I have prayed that they would be bad at soccer, so they would go on to something else, but God has chosen to give me this time of suffering and thorn in the flesh. Now, as you can imagine, I've got three kids playing soccer. They're all on a different team. Schedules get pretty hectic at times. But we try to keep two main things as a priority in our family. And I would just encourage you to think about these as priorities for yours. I'm not saying I'm perfect at this, but two main priorities that we keep. Number one, family devotions every night. We read the Bible and we pray together every night. Nothing fancy. Dr. Pastor Dad doesn't pull out his Bible charts and start speaking in Hebrew to them or anything like that. We read the Bible and we pray as a family every night. And priority number two, Is church on Sundays. When soccer conflicts, church wins. And someone else can score those seven goals for their team. But that kind of priority teaches my kids that God is more important than sports. If soccer always beats church, if vacations always beat church, if sleeping in always beats church, what does that say about our priorities and our love for the Lord? The Israelites had their priorities straight. Worship was their priority. What is yours? Third application from this text. God's people lived in light of God's future promises. God's past faithfulness motivated their present obedience based on God's future promises. Before that temple was built, the people were gathering around the rubble ready to worship, living in light of a future that they believed in. They saw God's work in the past, they saw God actively working in the present, and they knew God would continue to work in the future. Well, what about us? What has God promised to us? Here's one. Jesus said, I'm coming back. He's returning one day. Are we living in light of that promise. We know God's been faithful in the past. We see his faithfulness among his people here. You come out tonight, you're gonna hear how God has faithfully worked in difficult times. Can we believe that God really will come back and are we living in light of that today? Do you live every moment as if Jesus could return this hour? Do you organize your life goals in light of the reality of eternity? Do you share the gospel with urgency knowing that our time and everyone else's time is short. Make your time count in light of God's promises. Much more than just a list of names, Ezra 2 is a passage that magnifies the faithfulness of God. And remarkably, God's people responded with faithfulness on their own. May God's church today be ever so faithful as well. Let me pray towards that end. Our faithful God, we are so thankful for the work that you have done in the past through the Israelites, through our redemption, Christ on the cross, his resurrection, through our lives, Lord, even when we were unfaithful, you were faithful. I pray that today that you would motivate and stir up the hearts of this people, that they would be faithful in the little things and the big things in their lives too. Help their priorities to be set on worship help their hearts to be devoted to you. And I pray that you would stir them up to a courageous obedience as they leave these walls here. And through that, Lord, may you get the glory. May you get the praise because you are the faithful God who motivated us with your faithfulness. And we pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. God bless.